This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited today because I have, he doesn't even know it yet, but I have with me Dr. Adi Jaffe, and he is the person that really ignited my newest project, The Alcohol Experiment. Dr. Jaffe and I were both speaking at a conference, the Harm Reduction Conference last November in San Diego, and we sat down over coffee and some of the stuff that he told me about the landscape um, of, of just America and drinking and people seeking help and all of these things just blew my mind. And so um, it launched me into the entire project that I'm now calling the Alcohol Experiment, which was which was amazing, and you probably don't know that, but welcome. I didn't. Yeah, yeah thank you thank you so much for having me. Um, you failed to mention that we were having coffee sitting on the floor in the middle of this big room. Everybody was walking past, and I feel like I think we sat for like two hours and just kept talking. It was so cool. It was so it cool. It was great. Yeah, it was yeah. great. Um, so Dr. Jaffe is a behavioral neuroscientist. From I believe you studied at the UCLA, right? Is yeah, that correct. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. So, Where I still teach to this day. Okay, so professor as well, and he just has a wealth of knowledge, and um, like super thrilled to have you here. It's it's great. Thank you. It's and an honor to be here. It's awesome. So I'm gonna throw a bunch of questions at you. So first of all, let's do it. Let's talk about the the things that you sort of told me that launched me. So we were we were sitting down, and I said, okay this has been on my heart, this is big for me, is that I talk to lots of people who feel like they're starting to question their drinking, but forever turns them off. It turns them off and they run the other way. And and you told me a few different statistics that I'd love for you to just sort of share about kind of what that looks like. Yeah, well, you know, Tom McClellan, I excuse me, I don't remember the specific ones we talked about, so I'll just kind of talk about what I know about this area. Um, There's a guy named Tom McClellan, honestly, probably one of the top five addiction researchers of all times. Um, And he has this thing he calls the, well, we call it the McClellan Pyramid. He just calls about it, uh, talks about it as his pyramid. But um, what it shows is the fact that at the top of the alcohol use problem kind of continuum, or addiction, if you want to talk about it in general, is this peak of people who struggle with drugs and alcohol. And that's where we put most of our focus. But, you know, especially if you talk about alcohol, something like 60% of Americans are current drinkers. The vast majority of them don't struggle with things at all. But about 25% of the population fits into the area where there is some kind of struggle with their drinking. Uh, Another 10% or so are what we would typically call alcoholics, the clinical term in DSM. um, Four would have been alcohol dependent. And then at the peak, at the peak, at the peak, all the way at the end, are these people that actually go to treatment because only 10% of people with alcohol use disorders actually end up in treatment. So we've kind of been developing this entire system on, you know, for lack of a better term, the worst of the worst kind of alcoholics. And the vast majority of people won't engage with the kind of system that we have. And what we know is typically the vast majority of people who engage with the system don't do very well. And, you know, the idea that alcohol problems actually run along more of a continuum than this kind of, yes, you're an alcoholic, no, you're not an alcoholic, has been around for a while, but hasn't changed the treatment modality at all. So people make up all these 
crazy, stupid names for it. Like you're a high functioning alcoholic, you're a high bottom drunk, or whatever all these ridiculous terms are to essentially say you don't look like the other people we expect you to look like. But the solution is always still the same. You know, whether you're the housewife who drinks four glasses of wine a night and is kind of saying, I, I want to cut down to two, or you're a um, homeless ex-executive who lost his job, his wife, and his car because of his drinking and has been homeless for 15 years, the treatment we offer you is exactly the same. And that is just insane to me. And then you start looking at statistics in terms of recovery, and the NIAAA did some of this research, so we're talking about pretty large-scale kind of studies. And you see that something like 75% of people who meet criteria for having an alcohol use disorder at one point in time, when you go and survey them back, don't meet criteria later on in life. And that about a quarter to a half of those people don't meet criteria but aren't abstinent. So somewhere between a quarter to a half of people who struggle with alcohol figure out how to drink in non-problematic ways down the line. And that's something that nobody ever talks about. Um, and so we're left with a system that pushes one way of doing treatment as the only solution. If you don't buy in, you're in denial. You don't understand how big your problem is and, um, and you need to be coerced. And on the flip side, we have a lot of people who just won't engage and a good number of them are getting better. There was one, um, just to put this in kind of uh, storybook form, there was one, I, there was one analogy you gave me and you basically said, it's like this, Annie, it's like somebody's wrist hurts and they go to the doctor and the doctor says, okay, we got to amputate at the arm. And then yep. so they say, no way. And they leave. And then all of a sudden, you know, it gets worse. Guess what? Because alcohol is addictive to the human brain and then their elbows hurting and then they're back in and they haven't moderated because they, again, amputated the arm and they leave again. And then finally, when the arm is black and rotting and they're like, fine, amputated the arm, but now I have all these other problems. And sure. so why are we doing that? Why can't there be something and say, okay, let me, let me prescribe a wrist brace perhaps. Yeah. And I think the caveat is actually, you know, if you really look, and I think the analogy works, at least for me, it works. Um, whether you look at an acute problem like, uh, you know, fracturing your arm or, or hurting your wrist or hurting your leg um, or at a more chronic issue like arthritis or something along those lines. In most other disciplines, we're very comfortable with this thing we are calling harm reduction. I don't even know why we have to give it this name. The idea that you intervene at the lowest level that somebody is comfortable intervening at, not the highest level they can tolerate. Um, you know, right now it's kind of like you just hit somebody over the head with a hammer because they got a DUI. And I'm not saying that getting a DUI isn't a bad thing, but assuming that because somebody drove drunk and got caught, um, they're a lifelong alcoholic that can never use um, alcohol ever again in their life creates this, um, antagonistic relationship between the treatment system, which is supposed to help these patients and clients, but because of the way that the treatment is offered, they don't want the help. Right. And I can only speak obviously from my own experience, but one of the things that kept me drinking heavily, I mean, I had a very specific time in my life where a good friend of mine, one of my closest friends came to me, said she had joined AA and she had stopped drinking. And I said, okay, um, what does that mean for me? Because I drink with you and I keep up with you and we drink together and I'm, I'm certainly drinking as much as you. And she said, no, no, I'm different. 
I've been educated, I'm different, I was born this way, I'm an alcoholic. And so I took that as, okay, I don't have to worry. And mm -hmm. fast forward three years of me drinking at levels that just weren't making me feel good. I certainly didn't have a rock bottom, but they were not making me feel good to where I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out something else. But even three years later, my something else was not going to be treatment for alcoholics because I didn't feel like I ever was one. And so I kind of found my own way, but how rare is that, right? Like there, it's crazy, really. Well, the, so there are a couple of things there. Probably the good news is probably not as rare as we think it is. It just doesn't get talked about, okay. which is what I love about doing this and you writing your book and all that kind of stuff is it's useful for people to understand that it is not true that recovery only happens through abstinence. It's just not true. Um, and then there are all these other pieces to the puzzle, right? So your friend went to the system and was told something that resonated and it gave her an explanation and it made sense. Why? It made sense because we like simple explanations and she'd been struggling. Maybe you at the time didn't feel like you were struggling and she looked for an explanation and instead of somebody saying to, the, to her, you're a crazy idiot who drinks too much, why don't you stop? They said, oh, you have a condition. And that's what happened. And for her, that rang true and it made sense. And so that's great because it allowed her to feel comfortable entering into this thing, but into this kind of system of being. But you know my stance on labeling in general. And I think that one of the issues that can end up happening in there is that that's what ends up happening is these people start identifying as being different than everybody else. And, you know, again, it's, we talk about addiction as a disease and it definitely has biological underpinnings. I mean, I'm a behavioral neuroscientist. I, I believe in that to, to a large extent, but there are also so many other indicators like, you know, uh, life stress, environmental, uh, influence, um, past life experience or past trauma, things of that nature that are not so much about who the person is, but rather about the milieu of where they, uh, where they're associating. And so what can be difficult, and I went through this, I was sober in A for about three years. What can end up happening is you take on this label and what we know from research and psychology is when you believe something is true, you're more likely to find additional information that supports it. And you're more likely to start behaving in ways that are appropriate to that label. Yeah. And so you don't, you don't seek other solutions because you go, I found the answer. That's what needs to happen. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the biggest kind of points of, of debate here, and I've had this conversation. So the alcohol experiment um, is basically a 30 day challenge to go through alcohol free for 30 days, give it a try, like be the scientist in your own life, see how it makes you feel, get past, you know, the seven to 10 days it takes for alcohol to leave your body. And then, you know, get into kind of every day provide you with a mindset shift so that when you come out of it, you can hopefully make really good mindful decisions about where you go on the way forward. So when I first presented this to some of my colleagues kind of in the industry who have sobriety schools and whatnot, I was met with resistance and the, the resistance came from a place of absolute love, but the resistance was this. I see people every day who are struggling because they think they can drink normally, but they're in that small percentage and they can't. And every time they do, it's a binge or a bender. They end up being hospitalized. They end up being, you know, and so if they could just accept that they can never drink again, their pain would end very much sooner. So can you, can you talk about that? Like how, how do people know, is there any, is there any way to know if you can fit into this, I can mindfully drink again um, or not? 
there's no really good solid way to know that I know of at this moment. Um, but, you know, again, I think there are a couple of things there that are really, really interesting to unpack. So one of them is, you know, these people have tried to stop and they're unable to, but if only they accepted that they have to, you know, to some extent, you're literally looking, it's, it's almost like, um, imagine somebody saying to a cancer patient, you know, unless you accept that you're a cancer patient, I won't provide you with any other care. Mm. Um, it's this really bizarre kind of tautology that these people do. Um, I tell you that you can never drink and yet you keep going to drink. And when you drink, it gets really bad. And the only solution that I can think of is to remind you again that you can't drink and that if you drink, it'll get really bad. It's sort of, it's like chasing your own tail for a minute. And, and what I wonder is why do these people never, hardly ever do something along the lines of saying, Hey, you know what? This is proven really hard. Um, why don't you just go get a Vivitrol shot or something? Try to, Try to do something to help reduce the drinking. You know, they don't think about that. And the reason they don't think about it is because they look at it as the easier, softer way. Or there are these, all these kind of um, semi-demeaning, condescending terms used to this, you know, like, well, you're not fully committed. Well, if they're not, full, you know, if they're not fully committed, then they're not going to take on what you're suggesting anyway. And why not offer them a solution that can be intermediary? I mean... What so what is, is that, that, what is that Vivitrol shot? Can you explain that? Sure. So Vivitrol is a long-acting version of a drug called naltrexone. Okay. It lasts about 27, 28 days. Um, there are a lot of different ways that people try to use naltrexone to reduce alcohol use. Um, it doesn't, it's not like um, disulfiram, which is antabuse, where if you take it, you can't drink because you get sick. But instead, what it seems to do is reduce people's cravings for drinking. And when they drink, reduce the amount of quote unquote pleasure that they feel from the drinking and so they end up drinking less. Mm. It doesn't work for everybody, but I absolutely have worked with clients where when they're on Vivitrol or when they're on naltrexone in general, they drink substantially less. Um, and yet only literally like 5% of practitioners offer this thing. Why? Because to their mind, amputating is just safer. If they can, you know, if you're an alcoholic, it's better that you stop drinking. Okay, that might be true. But what if you're not stopping drinking? What do we do? What do we do in the interim? And so what I'm hearing from your solution is they're upset that you're telling them that stopping for 30 days alone is useful. And that's like, I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to say it outright. It sounds insane to me. You're trying to get somebody to stop drinking, but you're not happy that they're going to stop drinking for a month. Like, how does that even make sense? Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, so the naltrexone or naltrexone. Naltrexone, okay. Yeah, and um, here's what I love about it. If I can for a second, yeah, Eddie, like please. You're an open, well-informed person in this field, and this is a drug that's been around since the mid '80s for al approved by the FDA for alcohol use since the mid '80s, um, and you've never heard about it. Right. It's like, it's just bizarre, kind of how inundated we've become in this system where there are a lot of solutions out there. There just are. AA and lifelong abstinence are by no means the only solution. And yet they're the big elephant in the room that nobody can seem to get around. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I mean, I, is it the Sinclair method? 
Is that so? The, the Sinclair method is one of the ways to use naltrexone. The okay. Sinclair method recommends that you only use naltrexone if you're going to drink. Okay. But there are people that take naltrexone once a day or uh, twice a day on a daily basis to address it. And then there's Vivitrol, which is a shot. It's an injection you take, uh, and it works for 27, 28 days at a time. Okay. And then if listeners are curious about this, um, do they just go and talk to their doctor, or how does that work? They can, they can talk to their doctor. I have a few videos online about the Sinclair method. They can reach out to me directly if they want more information. A woman named Claudia Christian uh, is an actress, and uh, she recovered using the Sinclair method. So by the way, she's not fully abstinent, but she drinks rarely. And when she drinks, she takes naltrexone. Um, and so she has a foundation. I think it's called the C3 Foundation. And you can find out more information about specific. She is a specific supporter of the Sinclair method, not only now for one, but yeah. That's awesome. And I'll post I'll post the links below, especially cool. Dr. Jaffe can be found at IGNTD.com, ignited.com. But I'll post everything, you know, below. Um, this is this is fascinating. And actually Claudia and I have been in touch, which is, awesome. which is great. Good. So yeah, we've good, been good. we've been talking and um, she's read my book and stuff. And I think that, you know, the time is really ripe for this because what 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 I've been feeling, and again, this is kind of out of you know my own kind of street science, if you will. But I basically had a woman come up to me recently, and she said, "Oh, you know, I spent the entire day drunk yesterday. Just certain things with the politics are really getting on top of me, and I I'm drinking more than I ever thought I would." And and I know I can talk to you because I think you wrote a book about this, but um, and you're not going to judge me. But I got online and I tried to look at this up and everything was about just stopping drinking altogether. So I just stopped reading. And like, mm. for me, I'm like, Oh, like, I think that you had told me Dr. Jaffe about some study and it might've been your own work where it was like a thousand people were surveyed and, and almost 70% of them or something wanted to reduce their use. Yeah. I wish, I wish I could say it was a thousand people. It was a few dozen people. It was my study. Um, I did it at UCLA, and what we were looking at was over a period of six months, what were the reasons people were engaging or not engaging in treatment? So on the All About Addiction website, actually, it's well outdated now, and I haven't had time or money to support it, but we, I created this rehab finder, and the idea was to make it easier for people to look for treatment. What, what did I mean by making it easier? You know, right now, still to this day, I, I created this application 11 years ago, and nothing has really changed to this day. If you go to look for treatment, they ask you, do you want inpatient or outpatient? Do you want medication-assisted treatment or not? Um, do you need detox or not? And the bottom line is most people don't know the answer to those questions. So they need to rely on people in the field. And for better or worse, I'm sorry to say it, and I'm happy I'm no longer running a treatment center myself, so it's easier to say these sorts of things. This field is shady, and there are a lot of people that will sell you whatever they're doing mm. just to get the money. And so it's hard to t uh, always trust the advice. That being said, the, what the study was doing was it was taking people's emails if they were willing to participate and following them over six months. Over 50% of people endorsed a question saying that part of the reason that they were staying out of treatment was because they weren't ready to quit completely. And whenever I presented that, people said, well, those, that subset of people they're not really interested in treatment they're not really interested in getting help and i looked at them and i said how can you say that like they're participating in a study that the only reason they even participated in it was because they went to look for treatment so they're obviously motivated to go get treatment nobody nobody on earth wakes up on a tuesday and goes you know i'm having a great day drink is not an issue at all but let me just go look for some treatment in case one day i need it 
Right. The only reason you go online to look for treatment is because you're having a problem and you right. want help. Right. So, so it's just silly to me that people at UCLA, like people who I'm presenting the research to, were saying that to me. And that made me start thinking about what is there out there for people who want to get help but aren't ready to quit? And the answer was almost nothing. Um, and that started me really thinking on this entirely different path because up to that point, I was really interested in researching what can help people recover better. Mm-hmm. What I started realizing is that's not where the biggest low-hanging fruit is. We need to get more people engaged in treatment. We need to get more people interested in the things that we're offering because let's say right now we have systems, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or motivational enhancement therapy or 12-step, whatever it is that you do. Let's say the recovery rate, I'm not, I'm not even looking long-term. Let's say the recovery rate is in the double digit, but you know, 10 to 15%, maybe 20 on a, for an amazing outcome. We can work harder and harder and harder to create a system of care that offers 30% improvement or 40% recovery, and then we'll double the health. But only one-tenth of the people with the problem are engaging. Mm-hmm. If we can create a system where half the people are willing to engage, we don't even need to come up with better outcomes. We can use the same things we already know help 20% of the time, and we'll have five times the impact. Wow. Uh, and so we're looking at the wrong piece. We, we need to stop worrying about how to make a perfect treatment. Not stop worrying. That's not true. We need to keep worrying about it. But along the same parallel track, we need to also understand what about the language we use? What about the marketing we use? What about the expectations we set up for people when they enter treatment is unreasonable? Yeah, that's that's huge. I mean, it, like I said, the conversation with you where we sat on the floor and talked for two hours, like it blew my mind. And it was so eye opening for all of these reasons that we're talking about. And I think there was another aspect to it where you were just sort of talking about like not only do people not engage, but they don't actually tell the truth about being abstinent anyway. And so we almost foster this oh environment God. of of a. Uh, Dishonesty, which, you know, my big thing is all about the cognitive dissonance and how much it hurts to argue with yourself. And when you are dishonest with yourself or externally, you really increase that pain. Yes. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. So a couple of things. First of all, I think people lie for a reason. And if we give them a reason to lie, they will keep lying to us. So if you put somebody in treatment and you say to them, hey, here's your counselor, just please use them as a resource. Be as honest as you can. And just really, you know, we're looking to help you work through this. But don't tell them that you used, because if you tell them you used, then we're going to have to kick you out of treatment, and you'll be back out on the street. But please just be honest with them. Just, you really have to be honest with them. It's, it's this really disconcerting way of undermining our client's agency and saying to them, we don't want you to be honest. We only want you to be honest when things are going well. When they're not going well, we don't want to hear about it. Um, or I want to hear about it when it's not going well because you're anxious or depressed, but I don't want to hear about it going well because you ran into a bag of blow and you did something or because you had a sip of alcohol. That stuff I don't want to hear about. So lie to me. Um, and then the other one is, this is amazing because I used to work in, uh, before I had my own treatment center, I worked in another treatment center that I won't name, but and I think they do good work, but I won't name them because of what I'm about to say right now. We would do drug tests. So I would test about half of my group. I had about 15 kids in my group. I did young adults. Um, 15 so about like seven or eight would test on one day, seven or eight would test on the other day. I would try to randomize it, but you know, they got tested twice a week. 
inevitably out of every one of the rounds of the test, a couple of people would test positive for something. And we didn't test for a lot of stuff. We tested for weed, um, alcohol, opiates, and cocaine, I think. Um, and when they tested positive, we would come and talk to them and I would bring it to my supervisor. And kind of as long as they didn't test positive again the next day, because we were outpatient, most people didn't get kicked out. Everyone, somebody would get kicked out because they had multiple tests positive in a row, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. But use was ongoing in treatment. Um, and then I saw this study. I was at the Research Society on Alcoholism, so RSOA uh, conference in New Orleans, I believe. And this poster was being presented from, I think it was from Tulane. No, I don't, I don't remember the university it was from. Um, but they did a study where they outfitted people in outpatient treatment with an ankle bracelet, kind of like the scram bracelet that um, Lindsay Lohan made famous. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what that thing does is every 30 minutes, 24-7, every 30 minutes it tests you. But it can't tell how much you had to drink. It can tell whether there's alcohol or not. So they did that. People are in a 12-week program. And over the 12-week program, they asked people, have you had a drink or not? I think once a week. And then they charted the data comparing people's self-report in two different groups. So one group was uh, used something called contingency management, which has been known over 30 years to help improve outcomes, improve attendance, and improve drug-free urines and drug tests in, um, in treatment. So there was the treatment-as-usual group and the contingency management group. The expectation was that the contingency management group would do better. And they asked people, and indeed, best had self-report, the contingency management group had half the drinking rate, not only over month by month, but over the entire program. But then they looked at the scram, and 96% of people in one group drank, and 97% of people in the other group drank, compared to something like 20% and 40% who reported drinking in the actual study. So basically, so not, people were just not... People were more inclined to not tell the truth when they were in an abstinent-based. People, well, everything was abstinent-based. There, no, okay. there is no non-abstinence-based program in this country that does research, unfortunately. Um, the alternatives, the, the one that I had was the only one that I know of. But everybody lied. Everybody lied. Like 20% of people in one group said that they drank, but 96% of them drank. 40-some percent of people in one group said that they drank, but 97% of them drank. We don't know quantities, but because the treatment industry we have set up doesn't care about quantities, right? You can have one sip or you can have a beer or you can have a bottle of alcohol. And in terms of the outcomes that we've developed for success in addiction treatment, those are all three failures. And that's the ridiculous nature of the fact that there is no nuance here, right? Like, I think it speaks to everybody listening right now to say that if somebody who's got a drinking problem has a beer, it's different than if somebody that has a drinking problem has a bottle of vodka. But they're told that there's no difference. And so it creates this thing called the abstinence violation syndrome, where they have a couple of sips of a beer, they need it to calm down, they're not feeling right, and they go, fuck it, I already drank. So if I'm already not sober, let me go all the way. And um, we set that up for them. That's not because of them. We've told them there's no difference between a beer and... Um, you know, and a bottle because the next day you still got to show up to your meeting and say, I have zero days now and I'm a new, a newbie. So I think there's a, it leaves a lot of room and, uh, and we need to start as an industry, as a, as a, as practitioners, as helpers, we need to start understanding that people are lying because 
of the scenarios we're setting them up in, at least partially. It's not only because they want to lie to us. And the lying makes them feel worse. And they, when they feel worse, it makes they Makes them drink. want to drink more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course. So it's this great cycle. Um, yeah, absolutely. Oh, so fascinating. So, yeah, so all of this, this conversation we had really launched me into, okay, well, what can we do to kind of lower the barrier to entry, right? And yeah. for me as somebody who, um, you know, certainly was not in that high 10%, like I did the DSM quiz of the 12 okay. questions, and I probably answered four positive. Okay. And so I was really low. But I've really found that, you know, I just think my life is significantly better when I'm not drinking for all sorts of reasons, you know, health reasons and whatnot. But there's so many people who aren't in the situation where they really want to never drink again. Like they want to be able to drink at a wedding. They want to be able to be part of that social community and, and whatnot. And so, so they're trying it out. They're definitely trying to reduce their drinking. They're taking this period of abstinence, but then they want to kind of go back into it. Now, I've seen people go and go back into it and find themselves right back where they were, you know, drunk sure. every night or on a bender or completely miserable with their drinking. I've also seen people, you know, read my book and then go back and say, okay, I drink a few times a month. I'm not abstinent, but I am in control of my relationship with alcohol and I'm mindful yeah. of it. So I'm not going to get to be like, I answered four, but I was drinking every single day and I was on my way to answering six and eight and 12. Like there was, there was a train that I saw and it was going into a dark tunnel and then sure. eventually off the rails. And I just happened to see it when I only answered four. And like, yeah, I'm and thankful every day. In, four puts you in moderate technically, um, not low, but because it's two to three is low, four okay. to five is moderate and six or above. But again, you know, how interesting that a single additional criteria puts you in a completely different category when there are actually 11 categories. Um, look, you're saying that you saw, you've saw, you seen a bunch of different outcomes. I've seen the whole gamut. I have a client right now. We just finished working. I've been doing coaching with her for a couple of months. She was drinking essentially daily, you know, six to eight drinks a day. I mean, it was, it was a substantial amount of drinking weekly. Um, she didn't want abstinence. We were doing the Sinclair method, and that's what she wanted to do. And I said, okay, let's, you know, let's work it out. And so we started working. Within weeks of working, she was down to drinking a couple of times a week. And typically, not typically, but sporadically, one of those would be excessive. And she was really beating herself up. And I had to kind of unprogram her a little bit and say, hey, wait, three weeks ago, you were drinking every day. And you wanted to drink less. Are you drinking less? Yes. Okay. Three weeks ago, every single day, you were exceeding what you had planned on drinking. You want to drink two to three drinks, and you're drinking six to eight. And that was happening multiple times per week. Is that happening now? No. It happens like once every other week. Okay. So is it getting better? Yes. All right. Then how do we take off these layers of shame? How do we take off this expectation that we end up putting on ourselves of perfection because the outside world is putting this expectation of perfection on us and recognize progress. How do you allow yourself to do that when everybody's telling you that you're a failure because you haven't reached perfection? And it took a few weeks, almost like a month and a half, two months for that to really click for her. And, you know, two months into it, she had had one drinking occasion over a month period that she didn't like. It's again, really beating herself up over it. And she ended up in a situation where she took, I think she took, she was planning on taking two months off. In the middle of those two months off, she had some drinks. She was going, it was a very specific sort of event that she was, she knew she was going to be triggered around. And 
the model she's working off of right now, but again, one negative drinking occasion in a month for a woman who was drinking heavily every single day of the week. And that's within three months of work. And she's now in this place where she is abstinent on a regular everyday basis, but at special events, she gives herself the permission to drink. And that feels comfortable to her right now. And she's maintaining it. So regularly at home, she doesn't drink. And then if she goes to a dinner or an event where that's a big thing, she kind of, she reconsiders it on a, on a one by one kind of base on a case by case basis. My argument to all the naysayers is over a period of three months, this woman who's been struggling with drinking for years has resolved 80, 85% of her drinking issues, maybe more. How is that not considered a success? How is that a problem? Um, even if she slips up, let's say in four months, it starts re-escalating and she realizes that she needs to abstain forever, which I've seen. I've had clients who come in for moderation, try for a while, and then decide to abstain because they tried moderation for a while. But even during the moderation period that was not ultimately successful, they drank substantially less than they did before. How's that not helpful? How's that not successful? Um, you know, it's, it really bothers me that in our pursuit of helping other people, we end up hurting and negating successes because their success doesn't look like what we want it to look like. If you're drinking less on a daily basis, you're hurting your liver less, you're, uh, there's less of a probability of you hurting somebody else, there's less of a probability of you doing other things that you would be ashamed about during that process because of drinking. I think all of those are good outcomes and we need to start being able to respect those as appropriate short-term goals for sure, but maybe even appropriate long-term goals for people. Yeah, and I mean, I, I put it to people like this, because um, I'm so all about finding where your piece is. Like, where is your peace of mind? You know, if your peace of mind, if you if you try moderation and your peace of mind comes from never drinking, and it, a lot of people are just programmed that way, that, you know, 99% is a bitch and, and 100% is a breeze, basically, you know? And, yeah. and if that's where your peace is, great. But equally, if your peace is not going to be there, you don't have to put yourself in that box. And I sort of say, okay, if you... If you have been drinking every day and then you go and you do 30 days and you mess up one day, you're at a 97% success rate. You know, if you mess up two days, you're at a 93% success rate. Like the, yeah. those success not, rates, not like, bad. imagine if you're a corporation and you'd reduced yeah. your debt by nine, you know, it's, it's amazing. There's nothing else that we measure a hundred percent or failure. And, um, yeah. so this woman you were talking about, you know, she was on medication. Have you seen people be successful um, and really getting back in control without medication? Yeah, she actually rarely takes the medication now, actually. Um, it works when she takes it, she drinks less. So she's committed to, you know, doing her best to take the medication anytime she does drink. But on a daily basis, she doesn't take it. Yeah, I have a, another client. I'm not working with her and her husband. But um, when she first came, before she came to me, heavy daily drinker. By the time she came to me Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday were the drinking days. She was most of the work week she was managing to not drink, but she didn't like it. She was coming for moderation. I also had her take a break. I, I like people taking a break if they can. Um, and about two months into that break, she said, you know, I don't think I'm going to go back to drinking. 
And she had put so many different things in her life that had resolved a lot of the other tensions she had. So we had learned mindfulness in the process. We had figured out that she needed more exercise. And there were all these other things, you know, her coupleship needed work. All these other things that she started working on. I think she's about a year sober now. And she didn't come in for abstinence. But by the way, we never talk about her sobriety date. Yeah. I don't, I don't care when you got sober. Like, are you doing okay right now is what I care about. I don't want to start hanging this shingle on this notion that, you know, 347 days ago, whatever, you stopped drinking. Can you make it to 365? My question is not, can you make it to 365? My question is, are you living a life you're happy with? Are you continuing to make progress? Is there purpose in your life? Are your relationship positive? Have you dealt with any um, issues related to trauma or other kind of things that are happening in your life that, that are making life difficult? Are you dealing with those things? If your life is good, whether you're drinking or not is much less relevant to me. What I love about, like I literally have chills because what I love about this conversation is this is what I wanted. When I set out to change my drinking, I did not want drinking to become more important in my life, counting days, being, you know, yeah. I wanted it to be small and irrelevant. I wanted to focus on everything else about life, you know, and that, that goal, I feel like is a goal that everybody would get on board with, you know, but when you put up the goal as hope. sober is the goal, then you, you shut the conversation down before you have the conversation. No doubt. I mean, look, first of all, being sober, and by the way, sober doesn't mean abstinent. So I don't know how we end up right, hijack, right. hijacking that word. Sober means responsible. Right. Uh, you know, to be sober means to be to have a real gravity of the situation and understand what needs to happen and make responsible decisions. We've bastardized and stolen the meaning of that word to mean abstinent. That's not what it means. So I'm all on board with people being sober, right? You should make decisions in a way that's relevant to your life and responsible and serious especially when it comes to a substance that can end up hurting you and put you behind the wheel of a car and hurt other people as well. So all those things are still true. But most, not, I don't know about most people, a lot of people don't agree with the goal that abstinence is the ideal. Um, and, and that's kind of what we've done here is we've, we've created this alternative universe where a lot of people in AA, not everybody, because I, I have good friends who are in AA and don't believe this, but a lot of people in AA would, would say, well, nobody should drink because drinking is really bad. And that starts again. It starts creating this kind of antagonistic thing of now you're starting to judge all the people who are consuming responsibly. Um, is it helping them or not? I don't know. That's up to them to determine, right? I, I'm not really a big supporter of telling people what they have to do just because we've decided it's good or bad. I'm much Let's instead help them figure out what their quality of life is. I remember, I don't remember the term, but there's a, a way of thinking or a way of inquiry that you had talked about in your book that helped you get to those underlying beliefs that were unhelpful for you. Yeah, liminal thinking. Liminal thinking. Um, we all, all of us, by the time we realize there's a problem, we've all built up layers and layers and layers of unhealthy beliefs harmful past experiences, um, you know, harmful stories about our own abilities and outcomes. Most of the time I end up finding it's much more useful to dig into that and start understanding why this way of living makes sense to you in the moment. Because then I'm in 
I'm working in collaboration with my client. I'm saying to my client, look, you're drinking for a reason, not because you're a crazy sick person. You're drinking for a reason. Maybe it's biological. That could be part of it, but you're drinking for a reason. Let's figure out why that is, and then let's start untangling it so that your life gets better. Mm-hmm. I've, I'm not going to say I encounter no resistance. Just to be fair, the other day, one of my clients was like, yo, leave me alone. I'm trying my own thing. I'll talk to you when I'm ready. Oh, good. I, I sent him something back saying, good. I'm happy you're safe. I'll hear from you in the me shaming him and you know speaking ill of him because he's not engaging the way I would want him to is not helpful at all. I don't I don't see how we think that is. Yeah. Um, so one more one more question for you because we're almost out of time here, and I really yeah. appreciate your time. But you know, people who are listening to this, and and a lot of people who kind of come and read my book or or come to any, their desperate desire is to be able to drink again normally, and they go sure. through and they they find that. It just, you know, it doesn't necessarily work for them. Um, yep. How, how, is there any advice of like what, what path somebody should, should kind of take? Like, I, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So look, I think trying to take an initial break is, is one of those nice initial steps. I tell everybody, because trust me, when I give talks and I tell my story, there are inevitably people who have not been drinking for a long time who kind of get interested and go, oh, wait, you drink, maybe I can drink. I was a meth addict. Uh, alcohol was not my problem, and I'm not necessarily a believer that once an addict, always an addict, and you'll get addicted to everything, et cetera, et cetera. So that's important to say. But along with that is another important piece, and that is that belief and that desire, right? So what I really di- dive in with people on is, look, I wish I wish a lot of things, right? I wish I was three inches taller. Um you know, I wish I could dunk a basketball. That would be really fun. Um, I think what's important is to kind of try to move away from the shameful experience of I'm not reaching my goals, therefore that means I'm damaged. And instead, do the work the way I talk to clients about it, is really understand your machine. Really understand who are you, what is your body, what is your system, what is your brain good at and, and programmed to do. And then build a life around yourself that fits that. Um, you know, I, again, so I use that analogy with basketball. Nobody's surprised that I'm, I don't dunk a basketball. I'm five foot ten with, you know, with uh, flip flops on. So it's like, you know, I, I, whatever people ask me my height, I say five ten, but I'm like five nine and three quarters. You know, um, I want to add that extra quarter of an inch because I wish I was six foot tall. I'm not going to be six foot tall, and I'm not going to be able to dunk a basketball ever in my life. I can sit around and be upset about it. I could, by the way, do something about it. I could probably maybe go and train for years and years and years to make my legs strong enough, and maybe I'd be able to do it. I think we have to get realistic with ourselves, not in terms of everybody else's expectations, but in terms of the life we want to live and and kind of do an assessment. And maybe right now alcohol doesn't fit in your life. That doesn't mean it's never going to fit into your life. But have realistic conversations with yourself and then have transparency. So find somebody else that you can trust that will not be judgmental, that will not be shaming that you can have that back and forth so you're not the only judge of what's going on in your life, but there's somebody else that is helping you figure it out. And then right along with that is setting realistic goals and realistic expectations for yourself and then alternative paths of what am I going to do if that one doesn't work? What Which next path am I going to choose? Because if the only decision is am I going to drink without ever having a problem or am I an alcoholic, odds are you're going to keep looking at yourself as an alcoholic because 
sometimes you'll drink in a way that you don't like. What does that mean? What do you do about it? You have to really start thinking through all these things in the same way we do about a lot of other things, right? Um, if you drive a car or if you, uh, if you, if you're employed, your work days don't always go exactly the way you want them to. That doesn't mean you walk into your boss's office and go, I quit. I can't do this job. You have to come up with resources to help you understand this. Part of the reason why I like engaging in these conversations is we have to move away from that bifurcated fork in the road where you're either a lifelong alcoholic and addict or you're a normal person. Right. I don't think that's true. Right. And I think, too, when you equally, if you your intention, you really actually need to stop drinking for a significant amount of time and have a reset. But your intention yeah. is, but I'm not an alcoholic. You don't engage in that conversation about stopping for a bit either. So I think it all comes back. But this has been, I mean, just phenomenal. And I, I hope we can do this again sometime really I'd soon. I'd love to. Yeah, I'd it's love been to. so helpful. So thank you so much for coming on. And I just really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It. So good thank to see you. you. Yeah, you too. Absolutely. Have a good one. This has been Annie Grace with This Naked Mind Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can learn more at thisnakedmind.com. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe as it really helps us spread the word. Thank you.